so from the beginning, it was always like, okay, well, if something's really wrong, then it would be wrong for Chad as well. Therefore, you'll figure it out eventually. Welcome to the I Did Not Sign Up For This podcast, a bi-weekly show dedicated to highlighting the incredible stories of everyday people. No topic is off limits. Join me as we explore the lives and experiences of guests through thought-provoking, unscripted conversations. And if you enjoy this show and would like to support this podcast, consider joining my Patreon. You'll gain instant access to over 70 exclusive bonus episodes, entries into giveaways, a discount on merch, and more. Your support allows me to continue bringing you these important stories. So head over to patreon.com slash I did not sign up for this and become part of the community. I'm your host, Carling, a Canadian queer identifying 30-something year old, providing a platform for the stories that need to be heard. Elena Joy, hello. Hello, hello. How are you? My gosh, I'm like so excited to talk to you. I've been so excited since doing the, I still call it queer note speakers, key note queers. But in my mind, it is the queer note series I love that it. I was part of. <laughs> and it was, yeah, like the most, I don't know, such an interesting eye-opening experience and I'm so thankful that like we connected through it and yeah 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 and it really led me on a journey of realizing how parallel our stories are yeah yes I'm excited yeah. so I would love it if you could just introduce yourself mm -hmm. and then we'll get into your story fabulous okay my name is Elena Joy my pronouns are she her I live in Arizona outside of Phoenix I am the mom of four kids and one beautiful, perfect doggy. <laughs> and let's see, I, during the day, I'm an HR consultant. I work with corporations to develop inclusive leadership in their organizations. And that's super fun. Right now we're recording at the end of Pride Month and I got to speak to all kinds of different companies and start them kind of down the path of what does actual inclusion look like, which is super fun and I love it. And then my passion project is I'm the executive director of the Pride and Joy Foundation, which is an LGBTQ plus nonprofit dedicated to preventing suicide and homelessness in our community. So that's what I do. I love it. I don't know why it's not mandatory for the Pride and Joy Foundation to be in every business and school. Like, how do we make that happen? Right. Because <laughs> it is, I love the approach that it takes of not it's not just for queer people it is for the parents of queer people it is for like companies expanding their understanding of inclusivity and yeah the world needs it especially now yeah yeah we really do amazing well so your story you were featured on ted on the tedx stage which is so cool <laughs> and your talk is incredible and it's so relatable, I think, for a lot of people. And I think even people that maybe didn't come out later in life, I think it's just, it really speaks to, I think, finding your happiness mm -hmm. and what your definition of fitting in is and what that looks like. Mm -hmm. So would you be okay starting from like, how did you grow up? Where did baby Elena come from? Oh my gosh. Yes. Let's <laughs> go there. <laughs> okay. So I said I am from Arizona. I'm an Arizona native. There's actually not a lot of us. Um, well, not of my generation. Our next generation, there's a lot of natives. But a lot of us, our families moved here, which mine did. So my parents uh, grew up 
back east in the Connecticut area with their families. Um, my mother's family was very Catholic in a very rebellious but also devout way, which is something that I feel like oh. only Catholics can pull off. <laughs> um, and then my dad was Episcopalian, and he was of the Episcopalian cult life. And so for the two of them to get together in the 60s, late, early, yeah, late 60s, that was a big deal. It was a big deal for the town. It was a big deal for the parents. Up until three days before the wedding, none of the parents were coming to the wedding. Like it was that whole thing. And so they got married and they both came from pretty dysfunctional families. And they were pretty convinced that if they married like outside their culture to someone who's totally different than their family, then maybe they would have a chance of being functional in life, right? Like, I think, I really think they both went into it with that idea. And the problem is, is that life happens and you're still connected with these families that really hold you into these specific roles. So a few years into their marriage, they decided we need to get away and see if we can figure this out on our own. And so they ended up in Arizona and I was born a few years later. So there were two kids and then me. There's actually a nine-year gap between my sister and I. So you can definitely see like, oh wow, yeah, there's a huge transition that kind of happened there. I'm pretty sure I was the surprise. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, it ended up that even then they weren't able to make it work. And they were divorced in, what was it, like eight or nine. Things had always been chaotic and a divorce just kind of made it more chaotic. And when I got to my teenage years, I was really like, well, I know this isn't the kind of family I want. This isn't the kind of future I want. And I was using that big teenage brain to start asking those big questions of where am I from? Like, where was I before this? And why am I here? And what am I supposed to be doing with my life? Am I supposed to end up like my parents? Or is there something else available to me? And as I'm asking these questions, the people who were in my ecosystem with the the answers were people of faith, were religious people. And they said, oh, we have all those answers. And in fact, this religion had such a focus on family and the importance of parenting and the importance of putting your family first. It was all of these concepts that coming from a dysfunctional, chaotic family sounded amazing. Yes, that is what I want. How do I get that? Right? Yeah. And so the answer is real clear. You get baptized, you do this, you do that, you check these boxes and you get all these rewards or blessings as they're called. And so that, and one of the blessings was you would be able to one, return to God in heaven. And two, you'd be able to be there with your entire family for eternity if you used your time here on earth to be the best person possible. And so that yeah. made those check no boxes. Pressure. No pressure. No pressure. Yeah. And that made those check boxes even bigger. And as you were speaking about earlier about like fitting in and what does that look like, it really like hit me that in that time that I was really devoutly faithful, I was changing what I needed to, to fit in. And I was very conscious of that because that is the faith framework. You have things that are wrong with you. And so through faith, you will not have those things anymore. You'll become a more perfected person, more like God. And so I was conscious that I was changing things about myself, but I 
I really thought that's what I was supposed to do, that that's what God wanted me to do, and that that's what was going to lead to an adult life that would be functional and satisfying and fulfilling. So now I'm realizing, of course, looking back at the 2020 vision, like what I feel now is a sense of belonging versus fitting. I know now to pursue belonging in my community, in my relationships, in my environments. And belonging is where I fit in without having to change anything about myself and where actually quirky things about me are celebrated. Like that is belonging. And now, of course, now I know the difference. But back then in my 20s and my 30s, it was all about what do I need to change about myself to make God and the representatives of God on earth love me and see value in me. That's amazing. And did you grow up going to church? Like your parents came from two different religions. Had they abandoned both or? You know, I have memories of going to a Catholic church. I have memories of going to a unity church. And I have memories of the leaders of those two churches not liking that I went to both of them. And so whenever I showed up, I was like 10 and I would hear all of this like, oh, you shouldn't be going there kind of thing. It was very confusing for a 10 year old, right? But it was, faith was definitely never a hallmark of our family culture. It was once in a while. It was part of mom's history. My grandfather was a really big person in the Masons in Connecticut. And so there was that aspect, which is really funny because being Mormon, so much of their temple ceremony is stolen from the Masons. So I, yeah, I remember being in my twenties and going to visit grandpa and walking into the Masonic lodge and knowing like all the hand signals and all the handshakes and all the secret codes and him like watching him go pale. Like, how do you know this? (laughs) That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. But no, faith was definitely not, not pushed at all. It's so interesting that the idea of you kind of did what your parents did in that you didn't want to relate what they had. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to do something totally different, Mm -hmm. which kind of in irony is what their parents had done, like going towards religion Mm -hmm. and this idea that God wants you to have this very nuclear family I don't like this Mm -hmm. yeah this like perfect life I'm just interested like before the Mormon before you joined the church did you have you just knew you didn't want to be like them but did you have this idea that like oh I'm gonna get married to a man and have kids was it just an automatic and I started college at 17 and that was when I got a Mormon roommate and she brought me home to her family for Sunday dinners and That's where I started to actually really get immersed in the culture and really dig into the faith as well. Because when you're at college, you can also take a religion class. Most of the colleges have like a a Mormon institute on campus. And so, yeah, that time was very fundamental. I was in an area that was very devoutly Mormon and I was surrounded by people that were. And so I became entrenched in the culture. And even then... The thought in my head about marriage was my best friend slash roommate had sent a guy off on a mission. She knew she was going to marry him. So in my head, how the future was going to play out, I was going to graduate. She was going to get married and I would rent a room from them. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not kidding. That's what I told them. And like, did they know that? Was that the plan? Probably not. Yeah, I probably never should. That's that's incredible. Oh my gosh. 
But then, you know, it was the like six months before I graduated and one of her best friends from high school, who was also her boyfriend's best friend, came home from his mission and she introduced us and he literally treated me better than any man I had ever experienced, including my own dad. And that was shocking and incredible. And I had no reason to say no. Mm. He's a good guy. I remember being. Yeah. I mean, my guy wasn't good, but I remember thinking I have no reason to say no Mm -hmm. because everybody around me is so happy Mm -hmm. that there must be something wrong with me if I'm the only one not happy. So I should just like go along with it and something will click eventually. Yeah. Yeah. And you're young. So you do these, you do these things. It should be illegal to get married before you're 30. I don't know. Like, no, I fully if agree. If I think about who I was, yeah, yeah, you're not the same person. No, I mean, literally, our brains are not formed fully formed until we're 25. So the fact that we can enter into legal contracts that don't have any exit clause, like the military or like marriage or like buying a gun, right? Like all of these things yeah. require higher critical thinking skills, which pe- yeah. humans under 25 don't possess. So I fully agree with you. I don't think we should be able to l- enter the legal contracts before that age. <laughs> yeah, but here you are, like walking down the aisle. Did you do the whole temple marriage? Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. So whenever a new Mormon show comes out, like the last one was, I don't know, some murder mystery thing. And they showed the temple ceremony, getting married and the whole thing, right? Well, not the whole thing, a condensed version of it. And I will get texts from friends and being like, is this what you did? Did you wear those (laughs) clothes? Did you say those things? (laughs) Like, oh, buddy, it's secret for a reason because that's real embarrassing. That's true. People are always like, no, it's very private. It's Mm -hmm. very personal. But it's from what I've heard, it just sounds really awkward and embarrassing. I don't know how their membership is going to stay high with this new generation. I mean, my kids are already looking at some of the youth activities and being like, oh, that's kind of cultish. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) I can't imagine them going to the temple and being okay with what happens there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I just picture them coming out the other side, like wide eyed and like, I did not. I don't know Mm -hmm. what that is. Mm -hmm. So you start ticking off boxes. Yeah. You think this is what I need to do. I'm going to heaven. And then at what point do you start feeling like I'm not I'm still not happy or I'm not happy yet? Mm -hmm. I think of it a lot like a spiral. Like, I mean, from within the first. Okay, let me be clear. We live at. Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah, in married student housing, because the housing is all really regulated because you have to maintain the honor code while you live there. And so there's all these rules, like your landlords, if you're single, the landlords, you're not even in the same building as the opposite sex, let alone like the same floor or the same apartment, right? And opposite sex has to be out by 9 p.m. Like all of these things, they're never allowed in your bedroom, blah, blah, blah. So if you're married, you get the opportunity to live in married student housing and get your own little apartment with the other 20-year-olds who are married. And that's where we lived, right by campus, in these cinder block apartments where you could hear everything. Oh, no. So it was very clear to me that something was wrong. (laughs) 
So within the <laughs> first year, I knew something was off. I went to, because this is what you're instructed to do, I went to my bishop and was like, I think something's wrong. So from the very beginning, it was always, well, how does Chad feel about it? Which, by the way, that's his real name. I'm not throwing shade. That is his real name. And he's a lovely person, contrary to what the name implies. Okay. So it's funny because in my on on my Patreon, I share my whole story. Yeah. It's a five part series. He goes to jail, oh this whole gosh. thing. And I renamed him Chad. Oh my god. For anonymity. So <laughs> I believe that your Chad is nice. So I every time I hear Chad, I'm like, oh yeah. Tell me about no. it. <laughs> uh-huh. Yes. Oh my gosh. So yeah, that's what I was told for probably the first five years. And then probably five years after that, right? The spiral is going. And I, I get really incredibly frustrated, for lack of a better word, again, and I go and I seek help again, and I'm told, your body is fine, anatomically, your body is fine. And so maybe you just need to figure it out. And at that point, I'm talking to doctors, and doctors are saying, okay, well, you should really just masturbate. Like, like you need yeah. to do that and figure, like, if you don't know how to feel satisfied, how is your husband going to know? how to help you feel satisfied makes total sense but that would also yeah. send me to hell so right. there was, was no way i could say, do that masturbation uh, yeah that's a no-go no-go and so every mormon therapist that i saw i don't know how they resolved that in their own brains because they couldn't say that they couldn't say go and do yeah. that they had to be like, oh, maybe there's something in your history that's making it so you don't enjoy that. So that seed was planted by the, before I was 30. That seed was planted. Oh, there must be something wrong with me. I need to find it and, and heal it, right? So yeah. then by the time I'm in my 30s, yeah, that idea was already there. But I would say it was probably a five-year cycle of feeling frustrated, trying to find help, trying to find resources that's not working out, giving up, not caring, going numb then getting frustrated again. It just kept going and going. And then by the time my youngest went off to school and I had six hours to think for myself, that's when things kind of started to implode mentally inside. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine how you don't have time to think about anything but children and husband and church. Like that now you're also adding on a layer of that expectation within that community to participate and do all of that absolutely so how do you start like filling that void like you're mm. like okay it must be I need to start exploring this mm -hmm. well the first step is very easy because traditionally it's when their young kid goes off to school you know that last kiddo that's when you go to the gym and you get your body back so that was always yes. the plan you know, she's going to be in kindergarten three years from now. That's when I'm going to get my body back. So the minute she went into school, I joined a gym and not just like one of those gyms, but like a, this is practically a religion uh, in and of itself. You're coming here six days a week yeah. and these are your people and this is what you're doing. And, and I loved it. I loved it. it. I loved connecting with my body in that way. I loved doing a max deadlift and just having like total clarity of thought and purpose and body. Everything was on the same plane and that felt so good and I loved it. And it was in such contrast to everything else I felt during the week where my body was basically just offline. Like it was never 
heard. It was never respected, right? It was something that was just going to tempt me and keep me from heaven. So this six day a week tradition of focusing on my body for an hour was a huge game changer for me. So many people, when I get to that point in the story, they're like, so CrossFit made you gay, (laughs) which is a common trope, but not accurate. I mean, how does it not? Because I have two friends that are very fit and good looking, and they're always inviting me to their CrossFit gym because there's a lot of firefighters. And I'm like, I absolutely will never go there. I can't handle, like I'm a lesbian, but like I, I can't handle that level of fit woman. Yeah. So I just go, I try to find CrossFits when I go that are more men. Because I'm just like, ah, this is fine. I don't have to worry about you. Oh, my gosh. What an amazing coping strategy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because what would happen? Would you just attack? No, I I just become, I like, I don't, I forget how to walk, how to talk, how to, I become awkward anyway. (laughs) And then I add another layer. I'll just like say stupid thing. I, it's awful. It's not, I'm not like a flirt. I'm not, it's not a, an endearing thing. It's just very uncomfortable for Ugh. everybody. <laughs> for everybody. So. Oh my gosh. <laughs> okay. So you've got your body back. It has arrived. It has. Yeah. And you're still not happy. No, it was still. Or you're happier. Definitely. I, I loved getting all those, all that feedback and all those comments. Oh my gosh, your body looks so good. And how I internalized that because it was never, oh, someone's appreciating my body. Like that was never a reality ever. It was very hard for me to understand how my husband could be attracted to me. Like you, right? Like I did not get that. Right. And so it was never, oh, my body looks good. It was, I'm in control of my body and that makes me a better person. And I think that's really ingrained in our society anyway. When we see a person that we deem as overweight, our gut reaction is, oh, they're not in control. So that's the feeling that I gloried in. Like, that's what it meant to me. It did give me like more confidence. I wanted more. And you can only work out like that so much of the week. And so I wanted, yeah, I wanted that feeling more, like that feeling of everything being in sync and on the same plane. So I started running because of course my weightlifting coach was like, oh, well, that's the next step. So running, and I did experience that. If I could push myself long enough and far enough, I could experience that again. And boy, I loved it. I loved it. But again, you can only do that for so often. And so I wanted it to be technical and not hard on my body because the other two things were, and I was very aware of that and I needed my recovery days, but I needed something. I needed something. And so I found fly fishing and it was awesome. I had a running coach who was a fly fisher who wanted photography lessons because most fly fishers are catch and release. So they don't keep the fish. And the only thing you have after you've spent thousands of dollars on a beautiful trip are the photos. But it's really hard to capture good photos on your phone when you've got running water and you've got this fish that's squirming and you've got a fisherman, a fisher person who's like so excited and the adrenaline is pumping, right? And they just, "Ah!" that's me when I fish, but most of us. And so it takes, it takes a little bit of talent and skill to capture those photos. And so the more I was trying to teach those skills, I realized I need to practice this myself. I need to understand what a cast is so I can understand how to, how to compose the shot, how to capture the shot in the best way. And so I was teaching and I started, I needed lessons. And so I found a a club in town. And as I was 
excited for the next meeting to show up and go. I was going to the local fly shop and talking to people, old white men, and they would take one look at me and they'd be like, oh, you need to, you need to go fishing with Kristen. Have you met Kristen yet? She's like the best female fly fisher in the state. And she's young like you. You should go find Kristen. She'll be great for you. And I couldn't find her, but I was hoping she'd be at this meeting. And she was. <laughs> And like any good lesbian story, like there's always a Kristen. There's, that was there she was. There she was. <laughs> and so do you recognize this connection with her right away as a same-sex attraction? No. No. I wish. Boy, that would have saved some time. We, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we really hit it off. And I convinced myself this was just a new best friend. And I guess it's because I had never felt those feelings. I have a distinct memory of, of texting her in those early days. We really only texted for like three weeks. And it was this, I need to say this in the best way possible. You know what I mean? It was like, and I imagine yeah. maybe that's what it's like dating on the apps. I don't know. But it was like this constant want to connect with her. I need to connect with her. And then when we finally started seeing each other in person, I remember I had like this inner monologue going of like, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. Like, like it just felt so good when yeah. she looked at me. And then it was that point. It's like, oh, crap. This is not good. Like once it got to that, and it didn't take long, within a month, it got to that. And that's when it kind of hit me over the head. And was she out as a lesbian? Oh, no, no. So now you've got this passion for fly fishing, but also this passion for your fly fishing buddy. Yes. How do you manage that feeling with, your, then you go home to your husband mm -hmm. and your kids and your church and your community. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a recipe for disaster. There's no doubt. I am very grateful for that time, as hard as it was. And it was so hard. The contrast that it provided. I loved who I was fishing. I loved that person. And coming home, it was just like, you know, there's a phrase in Mormonism, endure to the end. And that phrase like sunk into my DNA. Like I would come home oh. and it was enduring. And I hated that because of course I had my kids who were the joy and love yeah. of my life. And so to come home and feel like I'm enduring was so gross, but also so eye-opening. And it's funny because now I'm realizing like at that point, so skip ahead, I realized I was quote unquote broken and decided to um, try to get fixed. And so I enrolled myself in conversion therapy. And and I look back and I'm realizing like, oh, that was almost like the death throes. Almost like how people are describing the anti-trans sentiment that's out there right now and, and feeling like we've come so far. Why is this here now? And some people are translating that as like it's their last ditch effort to try to be rid of this. And I feel like I could relate that to that time when I was feeling this enormous contrast and then deciding to try to be fixed was like my last ditch effort of trying to stay in heaven, trying to get back into heaven. And, and I'm glad I went through that. I'm glad that I was able yeah. to feel like I did everything I could. I wish I had been protected from the consequences of conversion therapy but I'm really glad to know that I really tried to make that marriage work to the point of trying to change something fundamental about who I am. And when you say the consequences, can you elaborate what were those consequences of 
going through conversion therapy. Absolutely. So 57% of people who participate in conversion therapy become suicidal and um, most attempt suicide. And 92% of LGBT, no, LGB, trans people have their own statistic in this area. 92% of LGB people who go through conversion therapy deal with lifetime suicidal ideation because your brain has been rewired. I mean, they really do yeah. use science to tr rewire your brain. It's yeah. now there on a fundamental level of I'm not supposed to be here. God doesn't love me. I don't deserve my children, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like there's a whole logic path that is set up and created. It rewires your brain and you will now struggle with that for a long time. And so I would say, yeah, that is that is the consequences. Now, I will say I have people, whenever I speak about conversion therapy, I have queer people come up to me and say, you know, I, w I went to conversion therapy. It wasn't that big a deal. It's not like still haunting me today, which is awesome. Good for you. That's awesome. But also- I love that for them. I love that for you. Also, I realized <laughs> that when someone goes to conversion therapy, not really caring if it works, like maybe their parents sent them and they're just like doing it right. to appease mom or a spouse sent them, but they're just doing it to like, okay, I'll try. If they're not bought into it, it's not going to affect them the same way. When you have someone who's like, I want this to be gone so that I can get into heaven or so that I can have my parents love, right? Like that is a different story. That's where we're dealing mm -hmm. with suicidal issues. That's such a scary statistic because it wasn't this story of, oh, your parents sent you away and it was this horrible thing. You actively sought it out because you were so desperate to fit in and fix yourself when there was actually nothing wrong with you. Yeah. It was every, it was your whole universe that was wrong. So your marriage ends up breaking down. Yeah. You end up like this conversion therapy. It doesn't work. Your husband obviously knows what's going on. What is the deciding moment of, okay, this isn't working. My marriage is over. Because you tried for a really long time, right? I did. In therapy and mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I went to that clinic four days a week, two hours a day for six months at an extremely high cost as well. And um, yeah, I had a plan. I was convinced I was more causing more damage by being there. And um, that day I landed in emergency services with real doctors and real medication for the first time in my life. I was able to sleep. And every time I woke up, I was connecting these dots. And what was happening at the time was the Brett Kavanaugh hearings and the Me Too movement. And we were hearing these statistics about how like three out of five American women have been assaulted at some time in their lives. You know, that six months had been founded on the premise of kind of what we heard earlier. Something happened early in your life that damaged you, made you feel like you can't trust men. If we can find that and heal it, then you'll feel safe around men again. And you won't be attracted to women anymore because that was a false idea. So that's what I'd spent six months doing. And then to realize, hear those statistics and realize three out of five American women are not queer. Like not even close, right? Can you imagine? Yeah. Hello. <laughs> oh my gosh. I would know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. So yeah, at that point, that's when, I mean, that wasn't the end all be all, but that was definitely the, oh, I've been lied to. 
and if I've been lied to about this, what else has been a lie? And so that started the questioning that started breaking down the blind faith. Wow. I can't even imagine to come out is hard anyway, I think, especially for our age group. But then to also have that like religious untangling has got to be so scary because literally everything that you thought for so long Mm -hmm. is wrong or not accurate. Like, do you feel like you were kind of led astray in that? Like you were led to this place through the socialization, indoctrination of a promise of happiness. Mm -hmm. Well, I definitely think that high demand religions, especially the ones that really focus on missionary work and converting people, very much also leverage being desperate, whether it's a third world country or a lonely 16-year-old. They offer a lot more than they can deliver. It does feel like, I don't know, I don't want to say victim, but taken advantage of you know, not fully formed brains. The the culture baptizes kids at age eight, saying that that's the age of accountability. And then at right. that point, once, if you want to get your names off the record of the Mormon church, you either have to go through a series of interviews with them, which can be totally traumatizing if you're at a certain point, or you have to hire a lawyer to get your name off the records of the church. So, but they allow you to become a member at age eight or at age 16 in my case, right? And so, yeah, I definitely feel like it's a preying industry on desperate people. And and I do think that at that time, you know, that was the 90s. I got baptized in 93. And the more people act to evangelicals were doing the same thing. Like that was the purity craze. I mean- we were all wearing purity rings and singing Christian rock and doing really weird stuff. So that yeah. it wasn't just the Mormons, but it was definitely the time and it was definitely the Mormons for me. Wow. So you are just living your best life now. <laughs> you are happily partnered with your fly fishing buddy. Yeah. And your kids know, mm-hmm. how has your view on parenting, how do you shape these kids and how do you approach these kids differently now than maybe you would have had you stayed on this path so much I mean and I'm still trying to change so much I have two kiddos and then a gap of four years and then another two kiddos and so my older ones you know they were 13 and 15 by the time I came out like they had already been heavily indoctrinated in a very specific way of thinking so I still struggle to really connect with them And it's not because of them. I feel myself going back into a lot of old modes, a lot of old ways of thinking when I'm interacting with them. And I have to force myself to do really intentional things like say the unspoken thing, Elena, use your words. Like that's something I just never did. And I am still struggling to do that with my two older ones because they're the only ones kind of still left. I think if I had a lot of people from that time still in my life, maybe it would come up more often, but it's very distinct with them. My two younger ones, I would say I'm almost a completely different mom than the way that I raised the first two. I have a lot easier time saying all the things. I think a really great way to illustrate that is, you know, kid comes home from school and mom's frantically mopping the kitchen floor. And kid says, mom, is something wrong? And former me would have been like, no, everything's fine. Obviously a lie. 
teaching my yeah. kid to not trust their own instincts, teaching my kid to not ask me, and teaching my kid to not respond in an authentic way. And I would say that that definitely epitomizes who I was as a mom back then. And today, if the same scenario happened, first of all, I wouldn't be frantically mopping. I would probably be journaling <laughs> and meditating. <laughs> but <laughs> also for that kid to say, mom, is something wrong? And to be able to say, yeah, yeah, I'm dealing with something really heavy and I'm going to be okay. And I have resources around me to support me and I'm going to figure it out. And if it's appropriate to share with you, I will. You know what I mean? Like that is a different yeah. scenario. And I think that really epitomizes like the difference in parenting that I'm doing. What a gift that is, even just that scenario. Mm -hmm. Even flashing back to my own childhood, we didn't talk no. about things. You swept it right under the rug mm -hmm. and how things got dealt with, I don't know. I still don't know. <laughs> it's our generation is now tasked with being better yeah. without having the skills and having seen. It's like we're making it mm -hmm. up and we're, I don't know, we're doing a lot of the hard work. But I think that our kids' generation will just be hopefully so much better off i think so i think so we're all doing the best we can but and i agree with you we're totally making it up and it'll be awesome if someday that generation can really understand what that was like to completely make yeah. up a more functional way of living a day-to-day -day life and i think it's a nice wrap up the pride and joy foundation plays such a huge role in our generation having not had access and you know i talk about representation until I'm blue in the face, but I'll talk about it until forever because we didn't have this representation of healthy relationships and boundaries and queer relationships and different sizes and looks of families and la la la. Yeah. I think the Pride and Joy Foundation, like I said at the beginning, is so incredible because you're getting into homes of mm. every family. It's not just queer people coming out. It's parents mm -hmm. who maybe their kids have queer friends and maybe they want to better support them. Absolutely. I don't know. Did I? Yeah. You're probably more eloquently <laughs> speaking to what you do, but. Yeah, that's absolutely it. You know, on Pride and Joy Foundation, we pursue our mission in two ways. And one of them is, is to reach those parents who want to learn, but they need to feel safe to learn as all of us do. And when we're coming from a really specific background or perspective, it can be really hard to feel safe learning new, uh, quote unquote, woke concepts. And so yeah. our goal is to provide that safe space to ask awkward questions and to understand that we're, we're on a spectrum, right? And on one end, there is the, we don't tolerate queerness. And on the other hand, there's advocacy and there's all these steps in between. And so to be able to reach people where they are without judgment and I think that's kind of the superpower I've been gifted with is I can't judge you because I was you. Like there's nothing you yeah. can say to me about the queer community that I didn't say 10 years ago. So let me let me sit with you in that space. And I don't see a lot of organizations doing that in a way that's very, very accessible. We make all our parent programs online because we have so many parents who are in communities where they don't have a pride center that they can go to in person. And or they have spouses who are not affirming of their queer child. And so they need to be able to access information, you know, on their phone, sitting on the back porch with their headphones in. 
and they need yeah. community. They need to know they're not the only parent that's like, holy crap, I don't know how to do these new pronouns. And I keep screwing it up. And does that make me a bad mom? No, but you need right. a community to tell you that. Yeah, it's not just you don't go from being like queer hating to wearing a rainbow speedo yeah. at a pride parade. <laughs> like there is a there there is something in the middle and you can I just think if my parents had access to that, I think my parents did the best they could mm-hmm. with what they knew and I came out and got put back in the closet and you know it's cuz they just did what they knew. Mm-hmm. And so had they, yeah, had a resource like this, who knows? Who knows? That's right. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Ah, well, you're such a gift to this world. I'm so thankful that you took time out of your day. And like I said, you're very busy just trying to change the world. (laughs) So thank you so much for giving a piece of it to me. Thank you. This is great. I appreciate it. Awesome. All right. I will let you go. Enjoy your day. And we'll talk really soon. Okay. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode. I hope you found our conversation informative and entertaining. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to follow me on social media, share this podcast with your friends, and leave a review at ratethispodcast.com slash I did not sign up for this. Your support means the world to me. If you want more interviews, exclusive content, and ad-free episodes, join the Patreon at patreon.com slash I did not sign up for this. I hope you all have a fantastic week ahead and we'll talk soon. Hey there. Welcome to 7th Heaven, a lesbian recap. I'm Lindsay, and I'm joined by my co-host and real-life partner, Carling. We're diving into the 90s hit drama through today's lens. Get ready for our off-the-cuff commentary and peeling back the layers of the Camden family. We'll tackle everything from family rules, life lessons, and 90s fashion. Join us every week for a light-hearted queer perspective and a trip down memory lane. Whether you're a die-hard fan or new to the show, this recap is for you. So find us anywhere you get your podcasts at 7th Heaven, a lesbian recap.